Thanks, Heather. Hi, everybody. I'm Britt. I'm one of the pastors here at Sunridge. And whether you're listening to our podcast or watching online uh, through video, I want to say welcome or welcome back to you. We're on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. So wherever you're starting from, we want you to know that you're welcome here. And of course, Jesus welcomes you as well. If you're listening or watching uh, this video, you are uh, witnessing a pre-recorded version of the message, but I want you to know that during COVID, you can come and be a part of our one big service, which Heather talked about already. Uh, we're numerically unrestricted, but we're socially distanced and we're outdoors, and we would just love to have you come and uh, be a part of our services uh, here on our campus. So now let's just jump into our scripture for today. This morning, I'm reading from the New International Version from God Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. These are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and I would just like to start by saying a short prayer. God, um, thank you for this clear word from Jesus, for uh, giving us his true and faithful words, and I pray that Whoever's listening, whoever's watching, that our hearts would be opened by your Holy Spirit and you would be our teacher and that we would learn something new and that we would have a heart that responds to the things that Jesus says here in Jesus' name. Amen. In spite of our historic roots uh, being deep in the uh, Jewish religion, many modern American Christians still have an uncomfortable relationship with the Old Testament. For some of us, it's, it's so foreign. There are foreign cultures that were so many centuries ago. There's weird names, lands that we don't know about, history that we haven't been taught. And uh, there's all the stories that can be hard to relate to because of all those things. And the God of the Old Testament sometimes seems so different. And then, of course, there's always those crazy rules, right? Sometimes, I think... A Christian's viewpoint or perspective or relationship with the Old Testament is kind of like that crazy uncle that you have in your family. You know, uh, he's part of the family, but you limit your exposure to him to only the holidays. And so today, you know, many Christians avoid the Old Testament and some are even saying that it's not for today. But what about Jesus? What was Jesus's perspective on the Old Testament? If you're familiar with your New Testament or the teachings of Jesus, you know that he refers to the Old Testament a lot. And certainly this passage here might be the most clear uh, passage that we have on his perspective of the Old Testament. And because it's his perspective and we follow him and apprentice under him, it's going to help us to have the right perspective. Now, if you've been tracking with us, you know that we're in a study of the Sermon on the Mount. That's where this passage comes from. 
And everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus lived, all the passions that he had and the values that he had, and, and then his followers and the first century church, they all are built upon the foundation of these words. Uh, some have called this the manifesto of Christianity. In the Sermon on the Mount, thus far, we've seen that Jesus starts in the third person when he talks about the blessed ones. And then he continues in the second person when he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But here he speaks in the first person when he says, I tell you. And he's grabbing another gear here because he is being authoritative in what he's saying. And of course, as Jed talked about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when we began at the end, Matthew describes the hearer's response to Jesus' words. When he finished teaching, Matthew said the crowds were amazed. Why were they amazed? They were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. He had something different. In comparison to whom? In comparison to the teachers of that day. You see, they already had an authority. It was the law as they knew it. And those who teach it uh, had only the authority that the law gave them. They explained it. And we're going to talk about what the law is. But the law and the prophets were their Bible at this time. It told them how to live. It told them what was important. And so they taught it in much the same way that I'm teaching the Bible to you today. I have no authority over you. I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. Uh, the words that I say are only important as, in as much as it explains the Bible. So I teach the Bible. But the authority that Jesus claims here is different. And it's the key to understanding this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, and the entire mission and life of Jesus. When he says, I tell you, he's saying something that's much bigger than he's, he's not just saying, uh, well, this is my opinion. He's speaking from a place of authority. And this explains why the religious leaders of his day were so frustrated, sometimes offended, and eventually furious with him. Because he's claiming to be in, not just an authority in the scriptures over and above their teaching. That, that is like, I'm not, he's not just saying I'm smarter than you or I have a better grasp of the scriptures. Uh, he's saying that he is the fulfillment of these scriptures. And so in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus makes four simple, straightforward statements and all are conveni conveniently noted by verses. So this sermon outline was really easy to, for me to put together. It's point one in verse 17, point two in verse 18, then 19, and then 20. So let's get after it. Number one, Jesus says that he didn't abolish the Old Testament. He says that explicitly in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now we're going to talk about the law and the prophets in just a second. But I want to point out that this is the first thing in this sermon that Jesus says about himself. And he says, don't think, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And so evidently people are saying this. They're likely saying this because he wasn't following the law as they saw it. He wasn't following all of their traditions. Often he was critical of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. He, he was keeping, keeping all the wrong company. 
And of course, the Apostle Paul faced similar accusations of lawlessness from the Judaizers. Basically, they were saying, you must be rejecting uh, the law and the prophets because you're not following our scriptures, not as the not in the way that we see it. So what are what is the law and the prophets? Number one, let's talk about the law. When we hear that word, we think of getting pulled over. Uh, we think of judges and lawyers and courtrooms and juries. But when Jesus uses the word law, he's talking about the moral laws of Israel. To um, the Jewish believer at this time, this was the Torah. And so the Torah, you might have heard that word before, it's interchangeable with law. And it comes both generally and specifically from the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes when we use the word Torah, we're just talking about an all-encompassing uh, word to, to capture uh, the, the moral laws of the Old Testament. But specifically, I brought a Bible here today. It is the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so he's talking specifically about this. In the, in the a Greek word for this is the Pentateuch, and it's the first five books of the Bible. And in this law, or the Torah, there were 613 commandments. We have uh, the Ten Commandments, you might be familiar with those, and then there were 603 other commandments. You put those together, you have 613 commandments that make up the Torah. Now, who ever counted those? It's like, I wondered that. And I'm here to tell you that Rabbi Simlai of the third century did this. In fact, he did more than count the commandments. He broke them into positive and negative commandments. And he found that the negative outnumbered the positive by 117. That's just a little tidbit you might be interested in. So that's the law. But then what, what are the prophets? The prophets are the other main scriptures of the Old Testament. And so specifically, if I just grab what we know is the major and minor prophets, it makes up this much of your Bible. This is Jeremiah and Micah and Malachi and Isaiah and other prophets. And the prophets were the spiritual voice of early Israel. They gave warnings and encouragement to the people. They guided the nation in how to interpret the laws and the values that Moses had passed down to them through the law. And they also spoke of the coming Messiah. And Jesus said his teaching was consistent with the Torah, the law, and then the words of the prophets. And so it is not abolished and it is not eliminated. Because of that, the next thing Jesus says, that everything in Torah was still in play, was still in play. In verse 18, he says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law till everything is accomplished. And so here Jesus is unpacking the seriousness of his previous claim that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he's mentioning the smallest letter and the least stroke of a pen. The smallest letter is the letter I or iota in Greek. You might have heard the phrase, not one iota. That's where it comes from. And then the least stroke is a dot over a lowercase i. 
If you have a King James Bible, it says not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. Now, what is he talking about here? Now, even, even though my elementary school best friend, Sam, uh, went to Hebrew school, and sometimes after school, he would have to study his Hebrew, and I would sit there with him and watch him or participate the best I can. He read from the back to the front, read from the right to the left, and it was a bunch of letters that I could have never read, but he would read out loud to me. Even though I knew Sam, I am not an expert or a scholar in Hebrew. But I can tell you that uh, I have Google, and I went to gotquestions.org, and I looked at some examples of what Jesus was likely talking about. And so here I have a jot and a tittle. And you can see that a tittle, a jot is just this little mark, and then a tittle is part of that letter right there. A tittle is even smaller than a jot because it's an extension or a pen stroke that's part of a letter that differentiates just in the, in the, in the small way that it's different. Uh, and we have here two different letters that are side by side. One is the Hebrew letter resh and the other is dalit. And the resh on the left here you can see is made with just one stroke, right? Can you see that how it just flows from the horizontal down to the vertical? But then if you look closely, the Dalit on the right side here uh, has just a little overhang. And so that you can tell that when this letter is formed, it takes two strokes of the pen. The only difference between these two letters is the overhang of the letter on the right, that little extension of the roof. That's, that's the minute way that Jesus is referring to the law and the prophets. And he's saying that none of this will change until the world is gone and all is accomplished and the Torah will stand forever is God's moral law. So this clear and strong teaching on the Old Testament, the law and the prophets by Jesus, it threatens both the legalist and the liberal. Because legalism is a way of cherry picking principles or ideas from the scripture and saying everybody has to follow this one, but then like not really following others. Sometimes a legalist even makes up uh, things that aren't in the Bible to follow as a rule or a law. A legalist tends to find the things that they're most comfortable with following and then ignore the weightier matters. Liberalism, on the other hand, tries to water down all the teachings of the Bible. And so Jesus' word here confronts the sway of American Christianity that erases God's moral law and when it injects the popular cultural morals or politics or entertainment of its day. In the end, it doesn't matter if it's popular culturally or your preferred political party or constitutional or even legal. Jesus says it stands. And so he is uncompromising on the moral teachings of the law. Because he's uncompromising on the law, and because he says that none of it will pass away, the next thing he says is that their standing with God, of course, is going to be based on observing Torah. If these things still stand, then you must follow them. In verse 19, therefore, Jesus says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands 
and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now in verse 19, when Jesus begins with therefore, he's introducing the deduction that he's drawing now for his disciples. And he's saying this, because he has not come to abolish, but to fulfill, and because not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all has been fulfilled, therefore greatness in the kingdom of God will be measured by conformity to it. And of course, his audience has to be shocked by this. Possibly the Pharisees are with him on this. They're, they're tracking with what he's putting down, but not completely. Watch it till the end. And this is this last thing that Jesus says. It's kind of the coup de grace of what he's been saying. Here it is. Adherence to the Torah must exceed the highest level they could even imagine. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Boom. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was by all accounts very high. But their righteousness, Jesus says, is not sufficient to enter the coming kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's saying, unless you can do better than them, you're not going to make it. And this has to be shocking to his listeners. And certainly it is upsetting to the Pharisees because Jesus is saying, you ain't good enough. And of course, they are the heroes. They are the heroes of the, heroes of the religious world at that time. And they liked being the heroes. And so they are offended. And this is one more log on the fire of the conflict and clash between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Because a religious leader, the Pharisee, they're highly religious. They're devout. They're committed. And if they can't make it, then we're all doomed, right? So is Jesus saying here, we have to become a super Pharisee? We have to take it to the next level? No, that's not what he's saying. By the way, a modern version of the Pharisee, every generation has its Pharisees. And a Pharisee will always believe themselves to be more righteous than the others. You, you certainly must not be talking about me and a Pharisee is always going to be offended when a message of forgiveness is offered to others because, because they've achieved what they believe to be the pinnacle of righteousness. And so others who have not put as much effort, who have not been as devout as them, who do not hold all the beliefs that they hold, they believe that they're just not worthy. And so they cannot be part of this group. They want their cred. But if we can't be a super Pharisee, and, and if the people that were completely committed to being religious and devout were not good enough, where does that leave us? Well, I have good news for all of us. Because Jesus says in this passage, I fulfill 
and have accomplished everything in the law. Did you notice that? In verse 17, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In verse 18, he says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, number one, he means, I live out Torah perfectly. That's what he's saying. He's saying that he lived the law perfectly. And then secondly, he says, when they said a guy was coming, the prophets, I am the one of whom the prophets were speaking. Now he takes it another click in John's gospel in chapter 5, verse 13, 39, when he says this, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. So in other words, thus far we've seen that Jesus has said that he fulfills the law and the prophets. But in John's gospel here, he's saying that the scriptures, the entire scriptures that you read are about me. The Pentateuch, the prophets, the total thing is about me. I'm a great fan of the Bible Project, and one of, the, one of the things that they repeat often is the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. They probably got that from Jesus. I love what Scott McKnight says in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. That He says that this is a clear statement of the gospel. This says overtly and boldly that the story of Israel is fulfilled in Jesus himself, his life, his teachings his actions. Everything about him completes what was anticipated in the Old Testament. That's the gospel. What was fulfilled and accomplished? What is Jesus claiming here? Well, the Torah was a covenant, a contract between God and Abraham initially, and then Israel. And if you know the story, God calls Abraham to leave the land that he's in and to go to a land that he will show him. And in Genesis 12, he says, when you do that, I will bless you and I will demonstrate my love through you. And then I will demonstrate it through your people and I will bless the world through you. Now that covenant that God made with Abraham and then Israel was based on Israel's performance. How are they doing with that? If you've read your Old Testament, how did Israel do? Many times Israel walks away from God. That's the pattern. That's the story, basically, of all of the Old Testament. And God keeps sticking with them. God doesn't abandon them. God allows them to blow it. He lures, woos them back. And then they repeat the cycle. And eventually, God lets them drive the whole thing into the ground. And they find themselves in exile to Babylon. And then the prophet Jeremiah announces something. He tells them that a new covenant is coming. In Jeremiah 31, 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. God describes his relationship with Israel as a marriage. And it was like he was the faithful husband to the unfaithful wife. And Jeremiah says that there will be a time after this repeated adultery by Israel that God will make a new covenant with them. And it's going to be a different kind of covenant because all they ever did was blow the old covenant. Not because the law was bad, but because the people were unfaithful. They could just never live up to it. Are you tracking with me? So then, is Jesus doing away with Torah? No. But a new covenant is being established through him. By the way, Christian, does the phrase new covenant ring a bell for you? In the upper room when Jesus has the last supper with his disciples, Luke records that after supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus' blood was symbolic of this new covenant, this new deal that God was making with humanity. Jeremiah continues in verse 33 when he says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the new covenant. How does this new covenant work? The new covenant is based on forgiveness now, not performance. It's a total different way of relating for human beings to relate to God because forgiveness changes the heart. Think of when someone has forgiven you. I mean, significantly forgiven you. You really blew it. Maybe you were unfaithful in your marriage or you cheated on a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they said to you, I forgive you. We're going to get through this because I forgive you. Or maybe you owed someone money and there was no way you were going to be able to pay it back and and you stressed about it and maybe you even avoided that, that person. And then one day they just came to you and said, hey, you know that money you owe me? Just forget it. I, I don't want it back. Or maybe you hurt a friend. Maybe even intentionally. And that friend said to you, you know, let's... Let's let bygones be bygones. Let's let the water run under the bridge. I forgive you. Let's move on. Maybe in some kind of a relationship, you had a big blow up and a conflict. And man, it was just like it looked really bad. And what typically happens after that? There's no more relationship usually, right? But if someone forgives, someone forgives you for the wrong that you did, even though you blew it, and you work through it, that relationship is different than before. 
it's probably stronger. There's a bond that forms because you've been through that. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus preached a message of forgiveness. Think of the woman caught in adultery. Think of how he called tax collectors to be his closest followers. Think of the religious outcasts that he made a part of his inner circle and called them his friends. And this new covenant, the new way of doing relationship between God and man, it's different. It's not forced any longer. And because you have the confidence of the relationship, not based on what you did today or what you're going to do tomorrow or what you did yesterday, your obedience, your connection in that relationship is a joy because your relationship is connected at the heart. Jesus said that he came into the world not to condemn the world, but to forgive the world. And that's why we'll see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus goes after the heart. In the, in the next sections that we'll look at, he exposes pride and lust and unrestrained anger. And in each of those sins or besetting behaviors that we have, he's going to say, you've heard this about that, but I say to you. And each time he's going to move from the just kind of the surface level of implementation and following the rules, and he's going to dig down to the heart. And this is an entirely new way to follow God. You see, the Christian faith is based on forgiveness, not performance. Let that sink in. Let it sink in right now. Let it sink into your heart daily. And let it sink in as you think about your relationship with God, but also others' relationship with God and your relationship with them. But I know that you're probably thinking now, well, what, well, what about the law? You just said that Jesus said none of it is eliminated. He did not come to abolish it. The new covenant doesn't change God's standard, but it does change his, its purpose. In Paul's words in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 24, really bring this out. He says, therefore the law, what we've just talked about, has become our tutor, our teacher, our mentor, to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith, not by the law, but the law is our tutor to lead us to him. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That's from the New American Standard Bible. Where the, where the NASB uses the word tutor, the King James Version calls it your schoolmaster. But Paul says the law is not something that we're trying to fulfill every day, but the law is meant to lead us to Christ. I look at it this way. The first instrument that I learned to play was clarinet. And uh, I'm kind of embarrassed about that. I don't know if that's an issue or not. But um, my parents bought me a clarinet. They said, you're going to take clarinet lessons. And so my next door neighbor was a, was a musician. And so I used to go over there and I hated it. I hated it because I wanted to play the drums. 
And finally, I nagged enough and whined enough and uh, broke enough on my clarinet and skipped enough lessons that my parents finally relented and they bought me a set of drums. And so I started to take drum lessons. It was about maybe fourth grade, fifth grade. And um, I was super excited to show up to my first drum lesson. And I got there and I thought, I'm going to play the drums. And you know, I didn't play the drums for months. Instead, I had to learn all these things that my drum teacher called rudiments. Rudiments, the, all these basic things. For, the first thing was like how to hold the sticks. And I, I'm not good at playing the drums anymore, but I hold the sticks old school um, with the left hand, you know, through these fingers here rather than just like this. Um, and for months, week after week after week, I never even really touched a drum. I had my sticks and a little pad, and I did these rudiments. I could, I practiced flams and paradiddles and flamadiddles and three-stroke roughs and four-stroke roughs and eventually what are called fills. And eventually, I actually got to play the drums. But it was only after I had learned all these rudiments that I could actually play. The point is, without that basic knowledge of all these components that, that come together in drum playing, I could never play the drums. I had to learn these rudiments. Without that basic knowledge, I could never play music. And for us today, followers of Jesus, we still need the law to teach us the rudiments. These the, the Hebrews of that day, they had 613 rudiments. I learned a lot more than that, and a lot more fills in my drum lessons. But these rudiments made up the heart of what they believed. And what Jesus is saying here is that you don't live for the rudiments. You live to play the music. But you have to know the rudiments in order to do that. This covenant, this new covenant God makes, changes the purpose of the law. It is now our teacher. It is now the thing that makes us aware of our sinfulness and aware of our need of Christ. The old covenant was based on what you could do, and the new is based on what Jesus did. See then, the new covenant is not about us trying to move closer to God but it's how he moves toward us. See, for many of us, and maybe if you're, if you're not familiar with church or you're just exploring Christianity, you think of faith, Christian faith, as something, well, i got to get my act together. i got to get all these rules straight. And, and you do need to change the way you live. But we think in our minds, you know, if I can just do this right, if I can just get rid of this habit or do, do this next thing, uh, that's a good thing, then God will be on my side and he'll bless me and he'll accept me. And let's be honest, we think the same of others, that unless they can perform these things then they can't even be a part as well. And all of this, all of this is really based on the worst parent model we could ever imagine. Can you imagine, like, if you're a dad or a mom, that, you know, 
your child could only have your acceptance if they performed well, if they scored a goal in the soccer game or stopped the goal, or they got a hit, or they made a touchdown or threw a touchdown pass or made a great tackle. Now, many of us have been to like different sporting events for our kids, and we've seen parents that may maybe come close to this. But you know what I'm saying? It's like we don't love our children or give them acceptance because they succeed at everything in life. Some of us have probably had parents or a home like that. And so that affects our, our perspective of who God is. That is the worst model of all. And God is nothing like a parent nightmare. He is the perfect father. He is the good shepherd and the good father. And Jesus is our example of that. As he fulfilled the law and accomplished it in his death on the cross, remember that Jesus didn't come and stand on a pinnacle and look down on people. His life ends on the cross in complete and utter sacrifice an emptying of who he was, God. And he laid down his life for the worst sinner, and he's surrounded by two thieves as he's crucified. He is counted among them. And yet he does that because he loves us. God moves toward sinners through Christ. That's Jesus. And because he does that, we no longer have to fulfill the law perfectly in order to have his acceptance because nobody has ever done it. The entire Bible, when Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of these scriptures, the Bible is a repeated story of how human beings fail and God moves toward them in forgiveness. And that story culminates in Jesus laying down his life on the cross. I don't, if you're a Christian, that has to affect you. It has to like set you back on your heels. And if you're not a Christian, it has to shock you that God isn't demanding of you to reach a certain level so that you can be worthy of his love. He just says, I love you the way you are. And all you need to do is acknowledge your brokenness and come to me. He's constantly moving toward us. Well, thanks for listening and watching. If you're a local In our valley, we look forward to meeting you in person sometime at one of our one big services. We meet here on our campus every Sunday at 1030 in the morning. If you need help, if you have a question, or even if you'd just like us to pray for you, please let us know by going to info at sunridgechurch.org, and we'll respond to all those, whether we send you a resource, answer a question, or our staff and elders will pray for you. And if you'd like to know more about us, you can just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you know what to do from there. In the meantime, remember that God is constantly moving toward us. Enjoy that and be grateful for it.
Thanks.